Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Roundup. Every Friday, we take you inside the biggest local and state stories from the last seven days. The latest on the pandemic. 69 people have died of COVID-19 over the past day. 3,300 probable and confirmed cases of the coronavirus have been identified. One vaccine website to rule them all. Instead of searching various provider websites, the online platform ZocDoc aims to streamline the process. The mayor loses a floor leader. The mayor took it just fine. I mean, her and I have a great relationship. And this is just a new role. And Chicago teachers refuse to head back to the classrooms. We do not want to strike. You know, we want to keep doing what we're doing, which is working safely remotely from our homes. At this point, finding a public health expert who opposes in-person learning would be like finding a scientist that doesn't believe in climate change. To help us understand those stories and more, we're joined this week by Laura Washington of ABC7 and the Chicago Sun-Times and A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business. And A.D., start us off if you would. Mayor Lori Lightfoot and District CEO Janice Jackson just released a statement saying they've presented their last, best, and final offer, and they expect a response from union leaders today. Where do negotiations stand at the moment? So every day kind of feels like Groundhog Day. (laughs) Every time I write about this, it's one step closer to a teacher strike, and Lightfoot says she wants a deal today. Neither of those things have happened yet. Um, The mayor kind of put a line in the sand yesterday, but she's been putting several lines in the sand. The other thing I've written over and over is the mayor said she won't speculate on what legal recourse she can take if and when those lines are crossed. Um, They have not gone to court and they have not locked the vast majority of teachers out of their classroom technology. But I would expect negotiations to continue. I mean, the union has said we're going to write them a response, which basically says we're going to keep negotiating. We're not accepting this last best final offer. Laura, yesterday the mayor demanded an agreement by the end of the day. She said her patience with the union had run out, but now she's facing pressure from state lawmakers to get a deal done and to avoid a teacher strike. How do we get to this point? Well, we've gotten to this point over a long period of time dating back to uh, the mayor first running for, for mayor without the support of the teachers' union, which was soundly behind Tony Preckwinkle got off to a very wrong foot in that in, in terms of that. And then, of course, she ended up having to deal with a two-week strike pretty early into her term. And so the relationship has been pretty poor and pretty fractured since the beginning. AAD makes a, a really good point about uh, the continued drawing of lines in the sand. She's made a lot of statements and a lot of threats and a lot of, uh, you know, last best finals but then she continues to negotiate. And on the one hand, you want to applaud that because you don't want to strike. You want to see them come to some kind of agreement, and they can't come to an agreement if they don't stay at the table. But by the other, on the other side, she's losing credibility. And I think that's one reason why state lawmakers and others are coming forward and trying to put pressure on her, because at some point you have to come to some kind of an agreement. And for some reason, perhaps because of the terrible relationship between CTU and the mayor, and CPS, that just hasn't been possible up until now. Laura, can you tell us a bit more about that letter from state legislators? They're saying that the most important thing is the kids and getting the kids back into school, and particularly for children of color who have been most affected by 
in-person teaching and in-person learning, it, it, it's, it's really crucial. And they're basically saying, we've got to find a way out of this. AD, make it clear for us, what are the remaining sticking points here? The two sides have come closer on a few things. So who will get tested and when, what kind of ventilation they're going to have in classrooms. CPS has also agreed to a 10-person contact tracing team. But the biggies left for CTU is letting all staff with medically vulnerable household members work remotely and to also improve remote learning for the students who do choose to stay home. Mm. Um, And there's also a big difference on uh, metrics for safe reopening. So the union wants the city to be below 5% positivity rate, no more than 20 new cases per 100,000 residents every two weeks. The district says they want to see a 3% positivity rate just from surveillance testing of CPS staff. So as long as the positivity rate within CPS is under 3%, schools should continue. There's also a disagreement about how teachers are being prioritized in vaccinations. We've heard about that a lot. A lot of teachers just don't want to come back until they get vaccinated. And that really extends the timeline because it, it takes three weeks between doses and two weeks after that, second dose for the for the vaccine to become effective. And the mayor and Janice Jackson want students back now. So that'll be that's still a big sticking point that'll be difficult to get over given how low our vaccine supply in the city still is. Adie, what are you hearing from from parents and students right now? Frustration, (laughs) just frustration. Imagine being a parent waiting every night this week to figure out if you do want to send your student back, can they go back? Is there a school to go back to? Will there be a teacher in their classroom there? There was one night this week where parents were waiting until 930 at night to hear from the city and the mayor. It's just a ton of uncertainty. And there's a lack of trust as well. It's a really frustrating, uncertain time. i I have no kids, but I'm frustrated. I can't imagine what it's like for for families in CPS right now. Well, I have kids, and I can confirm, AD, it is frustrating. <laughs> I can I confirm. <laughs> Laura, before we move on, if there's no deal by the end of the day, is Mayor Lightfoot prepared for a strike? Well, that's what she says. If you want to take her word that is, the teachers' union come back with another proposal or come back with silence, I think she's going to be prepared for a strike. But they do have some time. They have the rest of the weekend, technically, to get their act together. So I can't, I can't imagine that either one of them wants to walk away from the table right now. Can I bring up one interesting wrinkle? Sure. And we I love no wrinkles. <laughs> I have no idea how much this could change things in the immediate term, but legislators in Springfield approved a bill during the lame duck session that gives CTU much broader bargaining powers that they lost in the 1990s. The union fought really hard for this bill and urged the House to send it over quickly to the governor so he could sign it. As of yesterday, the governor has that bill. As of today, he is reviewing it, his spokesman says. The mayor fought this bill, argued it would throw a wrench into negotiations. If the governor signs it, I expect it will, but I don't know how soon that could come. It's just another like, oh boy, here's another thing that could potentially upend everything we're talking about now. Right. Now let's talk about city council for a bit. Uh, We are seeing an unusual amount of turnover in City Hall. This week, Mayor Lightfoot lost her hand-picked city council floor leader, Alderman Gilbert Viegas. He stepped down from his post just 18 months into her first term. What's happening there, A.D.? Well, first, we should explain what a floor leader does. Um, They're responsible for helping to line up votes for the mayor. In the past, under Mayor Rahm Emanuel, he was always trying to get votes 50 to nothing, 49 to nothing. Rahm was very involved in arm-twisting and cajoling calling Alderman directly, what do you need? What can I help with? 
Mayor Lightfoot is very different. She has not been aiming for 50 to nothing votes from the start. She said she's working for 26, bare minimum. If folks want to come along, so be it. If they don't, fine. I think she said before, anything above 26 is gravy. But she is unwilling to do that cajoling. She considers it vote buying, which is not what aldermen consider it. A lot of aldermen say, this helps me create trust with you, have a relationship with you, and for you to understand what's important to my ward and me. Under ROM, sometimes this meant offering a park improvement or a school addition or something similar. But Lightfoot kind of considers if you vote no, you're against me and has kind of lashed out. Um, and that makes it really hard for a floor leader. If, you're, if your mayor is not interested in giving you tools to get people on your side, your job's a lot tougher. Mayor Lightfoot is pushing back on reports that her personality is the problem here. She says aldermen are still getting used to her her leadership style. Let's listen. We are pushing people out of their comfort zone. There's no question about that. And many people don't like it. Sorry. I got a mandate to get things done. I got a mandate to shake up and change the status quo. And that's precisely what I've done every single day. And some folks are comfortable with that. Some are not. Laura, what's your take here? How does this all reflect on the mayor? Well, there's a difference between um, personality conflicts and debates over policy. And I think that many folks in the city council feel that they are not treated as equals. They're not treated professionally and and respectfully, dating back to uh, the mayor's inauguration when she turned, when she stood at the podium and turned around and basically issued a charge against the, the city council members and the census tried to take away their automatic prerogative. She is a reformer. She did come in to change things, but she can't do that alone as mayor. And she, she does, has to get the city council to work with her and to enact policy. And, and you know, like A.D. says, she doesn't think she needs more than 26 votes, but it depends on which 26 you're talking about. It depends on what, what the issue is on the table. And she's had a lot more trouble, not only with the city council, but with the state legislature, as A.D. pointed out, in terms of getting her agenda passed, because possibly because of her style. Now, Alderman Michelle Harris of the 8th Ward is taking over as floor leader. George Cardenas of the 12th Ward will serve as deputy floor leader. A.D., what are your thoughts on the challenges that they'll face in city council? I think one of their challenges will be figuring out who does what and uh, kind of divvying up the work. Michelle Harris is a longtime council veteran. She came into office in 2006, appointed to fill Todd Schroger's seat when he was elected Cook County board president. So she's she's seen some stuff on council and she's very well liked, very congenial, which I think will uh, hopefully help sharpen the mayor's <laughs> rough edges when necessary. But uh, it's going to be a lot of rebuilding, I think, of relationships, if that's what the goal and the mandate is. I will be curious to see if Alderman kind of greet it with welcome arms. I mean, Alderman Gilbert Viegas had a good relationship with a lot of people on council. But again, if your principal, if the mayor does not seem open to making a deal, it just makes your job as a floor leader a lot harder. That's A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business. Also with us today on The Roundup is Laura Washington of the Chicago Sun-Times and ABC7. A.D., Illinois is back in phase four of the COVID-19 reopening plan. That means limited indoor dining. Most businesses can reopen with certain limitations. It sounds like we're headed in the right direction. We are. Um, It's been heartening. I'm always looking for like hopeful signs just to watch um, our percent positivity numbers statewide. Back in early November, it was at 13.7 percent. Very scary. And now we're down 
3.4%, and that's statewide. Um, we're also seeing vaccinations tick up. Um, in the city, we're getting close to 10,000 doses a day. The state had a one-day record total. I think they announced just recently of 75,000 doses yesterday. So that's that's the good news. We need to keep it up, keep wearing a mask, keep social distancing. But yes, we are heading in the right direction and we can move to phase five, which is things back to normal in air quotes when uh, vaccines are widely available. But, you know, we're still at 2% of Illinois residents fully vaccinated. So we have a long ways to go. Yesterday, Illinois reported 3,300 new cases of the virus and 69 additional deaths. At the same time, we've been hearing a lot about these new, more contagious strains. Laura, give us the latest. What do we know now about these strains? We know that they're more virulent in terms of them being much more contagious. Experts believe that the vaccines that we are rolling out now are still effective against them, but I don't think that there's been enough testing because these strains are still so new for us to know completely how safe these vaccines will be. But uh, there's a lot of research continuing on, on, on that front. So, Laura, is now the time to start loosening restrictions, given that? I don't think so. I think that luckily we have the vaccine in place now, but we've seen we start to loosen restrictions and the numbers go back up, particularly when people are indoors. And this is a period of time when people are indoors for the most time. Museums are open. Restaurants are open in a limited capacity. Other places are open. I think then, then you've got to guard against. I think the mayor and the governor are being cautious and in, in, in trying to make sure that they roll out these reopenings as carefully as possible so that we don't have a relapse. Numbers are going down. We want to continue to make sure that happens. A.D., the city just announced this partnership with the medical booking site ZocDoc that's supposed to help Chicagoans find and book vaccinations online. Where do we stand on distribution? It's still rough. So we have been getting pretty consistently around 40,000 first doses a week, and that won't pick up until later this month. It's been described as a Hunger Games situation where people are, uh, if you have internet access, some people are signing up for alert bots for when an appointment becomes available at a Walgreens near you. So through this new partnership, uh, you should be able to and if you're in the appropriate phase, 1B, um, go to ZocDoc and they will aggregate slots that are available from mass vaccination sites at the city colleges, providers like Amida, Erie Family Health, Express Care, and Rush University. But again, there are some people that don't have internet access. I want to point out for people listening that don't have internet or smartphone, um, that Cook County offers a hotline to help find appointments. They've been getting a ton of calls and are beefing up their staff to handle that. That number is 833-308-1988. I worry very much about people that don't know how to like game the internet to find one of these available spots. The city has said their Protect Chicago Plus program is doing a lot of direct outreach, especially in neighborhoods with really high percent positivity and that have experienced the worst of COVID. But that's going to be a continuing tough battle to get the vaccine to the populations that need it the most. Mm-hmm. The monthly jobs report is also out this morning, and it shows that the U.S. added 49,000 jobs last month. Laura, you wrote a column on ordinance to protect hotel workers who lost their jobs during the pandemic. What can you tell us about that? Well, it's called the Right to Return to Work Ordinance. I think it has six sponsors in the Chicago City Council right now and the Unite Here, which is the local restaurant and hospitality workers union. I've interviewed several women who work work in downtown hotels who 
lost their jobs in, in March, but then they were permanently uh, let go in October, November. Those people have been waiting to, to go back to work for almost a year, and there's no guarantee that they will be able to get their jobs back. Many of these people are women over 50 who have families to support, who are also, you know, relatively well paid in their positions. And so the concern is that the hotels, when they do start to hire back, they're going to go for the lower paid personnel or bring in new workers so that they can reduce costs. So this ordinance would force the hotels to guarantee the folks that they've laid off the first dib, so to speak, on the job. They would have to notify each employee, give that employee a chance to respond, and bring those people back into the same positions that they left when they were laid off. The hotel industry is fighting this ordinance very hard. They're saying that this is counterproductive. It's a very complicated process. It would not even be practical. And that the, the most important thing is to, to do is to get the hotels reopened, to get the, uh, hotel workers vac- vaccinated so that they can start to do business again. They are prepared to bring back senior workers and experienced workers because those, those are the folks that they value most and need most. But right now, the hotel industry has rejected the, the ordinance of both ordinance completely out of hand. Now let's switch gears here. Uh, after years of delays and legal challenges, the Obama Presidential Center is finally scheduled to break ground in Jackson Park later this year. A.D., it's been so many years in the making. So many years. In February 2015 was the first kind of move that we made here in Chicago. The Park District was like, President Obama, if you'd like to build here, you can either have Washington or Jackson Park. And initially, they thought they were going to be opening their doors in 2021. But instead, it's been a series of lawsuits and federal reviews. Um, This is kind of the biggest obstacle that was in the way of them breaking ground, a National Park Service and Federal Highway Administration review to basically make sure that um, whatever the plans called for, it would not substantially hurt the character of Jackson Park, which is a historic, gorgeous, Frederick Law Olmsted-designed park. They basically got the go-ahead, and now the city is like, all right, we're going to start moving utility lines in April, and the construction can actually start as soon as August. But there's a lot of things that need to happen to make that work, including a lot of road closures that are going to uh, lead for some issues on the south side, I would say. I frequently take Cornell when I drive from South Bend to Chicago to visit my folks and come back. Mm -hmm. It's a big shortcut. And they are planning to close that bit that runs through Jackson Park and also change Lakeshore Drive, add a bunch of pedestrian walkways, install a bunch of new uh, street lamps, street lights. It's going to be a ton of work. Laura, what can you add to this? What can you tell us about the impact that this is going to have or could have on, on the surrounding communities? Well, that's been the the case that the Obama Center advocates have been making from the very beginning, that this could transform the south side of Chicago, neighborhoods that have been economically and socially underdeveloped for decades, that this center will bring in more jobs, both in terms of construction and operational, but also in terms of economic development. And and there's already been a a great deal of gentrification and increases in housing costs in in the media area, which, of course, is challenging for the people who are renting and living in those areas now, but there's a lot of hope and a lot of expectation that there are going to be more jobs, there's going to be more economic development in a part of the city that hasn't seen uh, that kind of resurgence from for decades. And just so we're clear, A.D., what's the timeline here, briefly? Construction, if it begins in August, should take four years, which is a pretty long time, and they have not yet hinted too much at what will be offered in terms of programming, but they say exciting things to come there. 
Well, that's it for the Friday News Roundup. Thanks to our panel today, A.D. Quigg of Crane Chicago Business and Laura Washington of the Chicago Sun-Times. Laura, A.D., thanks again. Thank you. WBEZ's weekly news roundup is brought to you by Nareda Moreno and Jason Mark. Special thanks to the entire Reset team. Dan Tucker is the executive producer of Reset. If you like this kind of deep dive into Chicago and Illinois news, make sure you're subscribed and tell a friend. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening, and we'll meet again soon. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.